0: Matthew chapter 19. Today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. and We will see Jesus teaching about marriage, divorce, and celibacy. Uh, before we get into that, though, I've got some interesting statistics for you from the Statistics New Zealand website. Uh, I was quite interested in uh, seeing what, uh, what are the stats for New Zealand in regards to marriage and remarriage and divorce and that sort of thing. And I I found it interesting that before 1867, only an act of parliament could permit a full divorce, allowing remarriage. And that only took place in England, (laughs) of all places. And so you can imagine that was a very expensive procedure. And so uh, the the stats show that between uh, 1715 and 1852, about 140 years, approximately, There was only 184 divorces that were granted in 140 years. And then in 1867, uh, here in New Zealand, they passed the Divorce and Matrimonial Causes Act. Judgment on divorce proceedings was passed over to the courts instead of England. And so a husband could divorce his wife on the grounds of her adultery. However... A husband's adultery was not sufficient grounds for divorce alone, so it wasn't equal. In case you're wondering, a wife also had to prove some other ground uh, for the divorce. Something like cruelty, desertion, or bigamy were three examples given. And so all cases were heard in Wellington, and there had to be three judges present. And then in 1881, the the divorce matrimony act changed so that there was they only had to have one judge in Wellington to hear the petitions. 1898, the Divorce Act was passed. Uh, then what that changed was that the grounds for divorce were based on uh, matrimonial fault, and they gave five things. So there was it was either adultery by either a spouse, or there had to be desertion for five years. Uh, habitual drunkenness for four years. Imprisonment for seven years or failure to comply with law requiring restitution of conjugal rights. Those are the five things mentioned, or that, so you could get a divorce. And then in the year 2012, uh, these are the, the most recent stats that I've seen. In 2012, marriages in New Zealand, there was just a little over 20,000 marriages that were registered to New Zealand residents. And then there were 6,307 remarriages. And then, of course, you heard about uh, the laws in regards to civil unions, and as a result of that, uh, there was uh, 235 same-sex unions. And divorces, there was 8,785 divorces granted in New Zealand in the year 2012. So they figured that out to be uh, 10.1 divorces for every 1,000 estimated existing marriages. So in one year, we had, we had over 8,000 divorces in New Zealand, of a population of 4 million. So, as you can see, we're not in a good place. We're not in, and I don't mean as in a country. I mean, as far as spiritually speaking, in God's eyes, we're not in a good place. But Jesus had something to say about marriage, divorce, and celibacy here in Matthew chapter 19. And the first part of Matthew 19 gives us a little bit of a background and a setting because we, we have a transition. We've, we've been looking at things like the parable of the lost sheep. What do you do if your brother sins against you? What, what, is, what should we do in regards to church discipline? And then we had that wonderful parable on the unforgiving servant. So we learned about forgiveness and mercy and things like that. And so now there's this transition coming into chapter 19. Let's just take a quick look at the background and setting here in verses one and two. Look at verse one. The Bible says here in verse one, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Put a little uh, map on the screen here for you so you can hopefully understand if you don't know your geography of Israel that well. But, but what we see here in the first part of Matthew 19 is Jesus begins his final journey. He's setting off for Jerusalem. Now, why Jerusalem? Why, why would Jesus go to Jerusalem? Well, you know, hopefully by now, he intends to die on the cross of Calvary to save his people from their sins. Now, how does Jesus get to Jerusalem? Well, verse 1 gives us a clue. Apparently, what we see here is Jesus avoiding Samaria like the average typical, normal Jew of that day would do. They would they would not walk through Samaria because those Samaritans were, were not racially pure Jews. They had intermarried, and so they were avoided. So Jesus uh, is avoiding Samaria, and he crosses over the Jordan River. He goes into that region right here called Perea. You can see Perea right there. So he's on the east side of the River Jordan. And uh, we're going to find in chapter 20, uh, a pro, you know, almost well, several months later, he's going to recross the Jordan River. He's going to come into Jericho. We're, you'll see that in chapter 20, and, and from Jericho, he's going to make his way up to Jerusalem. So, what did Jesus do in Perea? You might ask. Well, again, we see Jesus in, in verse two. He shows us that he is compassionate for people. He loves people. He's reaching out to these needy people. and and So Jesus' compassion for the needy was one of his prime characteristics of his messianic ministry. So again, wherever wherever he goes, he's he's authenticating his message in person uh, through meeting people's needs. He's showing compassion to them. He's showing his divine credentials that he is the Messiah. Now, why did the Pharisees confront Jesus? Uh, We see... They're confronting him in verse 3. If you look at verse 3, it says, "...and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him." And they ask him a couple of questions there. Now, Why are they confronting him in the region of Perea? Why did they test him about the issue of divorce? Because if you look at verse 3, that's the question they ask. Of all the things they could ask Jesus about, of all the things they could test him about, why divorce? Well, look at verse 3, because it says... They tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? I mean, does that question just seem like out of the blue to you? <laughs> As I was reading, I'm like, man, it's like you get blindsided. Where did that question come from? I was trying to figure out why, why that question? Well, if you know anything about the region of Perea, you might understand why possibly they're asking this question. Perhaps the Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce because this is the region where King Herod and Antipas beheaded John the Baptist. You remember why John the Baptist was beheaded? Why was he not liked? Because he had confronted King Herod Antipas about his divorce and remarriage. And that that didn't go over too well with with, uh, him and, and the queen. And so John the Baptist was killed and beheaded as a result of that. So maybe they're hoping that King Herod would hear Jesus' answer and maybe they're hoping he wouldn't like his answer either and do their dirty work for him and kill Jesus. Possibly the reason why they're bringing up this question. Well, Jesus is not afraid of addressing hard issues and so he addresses the, this issue of the legality of unlimited divorce. Because remember, they're asking here in verse 3, hey, is it okay, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So let's look at the legality of the unlimited divorce issue that they're bringing up here in verse 3. If we, if we read on, Jesus answers them in verse 4, and he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Hopefully some of those verses that Jesus is quoting there are familiar to you. Verse 3 says that the Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. That's an interesting word, test. By the way, they, they, were not, uh, <clears throat> they weren't testing him to see whether, that, whether or not he was a true prophet. They believed that Jesus was a false prophet. Okay, They've already decided that he is a false prophet, and they're just trying to seek a way to turn the people against him. To test Jesus, the Pharisees asked them this question about divorce. And the question, by the way, is is actually centered on the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24. The the issue is, what is is something that's indecent? That was the question that was debated amongst the rabbis and Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes of, of Jesus' day and even before Jesus' day. And that question came really from Deuteronomy chapter 24. And so Jesus brings this up. So if you're wondering what the predominant view of Jesus' day was, well, they, they, uh, the predominant view of Jesus' day extended divorce to any reason. And that's why they're, they're mentioning here, hey, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And I was looking at, uh, some of the writings of the rabbis. And they were saying that uh, it was okay to divorce for trivial things. And and they had some rather interesting things. Some of them made me laugh. For example, uh, ladies, uh, if you lived at this time and you just happened to, I don't know, get distracted in the midst of cooking and you burnt the meal, your husband would have the right to divorce you. That was one of the... Bad cooking was one of the examples that the rabbis gave for being able to divorce your wife. Another one, another one of the rabbis said, Hey, if you find a prettier woman, <laughs> then you can divorce your wife and go ahead, by all means, you go for the prettier woman. Those were just some of the ideas that was being taught of Jesus' day. So what does Jesus think about this interpretation? <laughs> Is it okay to divorce one's wife for any cause? Well, Jesus responds with a weightier quote from the book of Genesis. Hopefully you've, you've read the book of Genesis. You've seen some of these quotes before. And why would Jesus go back to Genesis? Well, you, well, you have to understand something about Jewish hermeneutics, the Jewish interpretation. Uh, they, they typically believed at that time, if you, the farther back you went, the more weight that held, so I mean how how much farther back can you go than the book of Genesis, right? So Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning and and so in german in Jewish hermeneutics the, you know if you're going all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament, well that's going to hold more authority in the Jews' eyes and so he's he's going back to this this creation principle he brings in this creation principle, which was in many people's eyes, was trumping the Pharisees' quote for the book of Deuteronomy. Of course, Genesis comes before Deuteronomy, right? So Jesus is is so-called trumping what they're bringing up from Deuteronomy 24. Verse 4 is a quote from Genesis, as I said. Why? Well, Jesus' point is that God created men and women to be together. Verse 4, right? Hey, have you guys not read... He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, Jesus says. (laughs) So the point is, God made male and female to be together, not to be divorced. That's one of the points Jesus is making. In verse 5, Jesus again quotes from Genesis. Why would he do that? Well, from the beginning, marriage was the will of God. That's God's will. Divorce is not God's will. God's purpose was the union of a man and woman in marriage. The two were to be one, and they were to stay as one for life. So yet again, we see Jesus here acting as the final interpreter of the law, of the Old Testament, of the, as the Jews would say, the Torah. Jesus is the final interpreter of Torah. We see him doing that over and over again here in the book of Matthew. Matthew. He's drawing the natural conclusions from the Genesis quotes. And so Jesus' response in verse 6 is very powerful here. Jesus is saying that what God has joined together into oneness should not be divided or broken. And that's why why he says, hey, they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. One commentator said this, No longer two, but one flesh aligns divorce with the violence of something like mutilation, amputation, or dismemberment. End quote. So when sinful humanity separates what God has joined together, it, it can only point to sin then. I mean, it's, it's just unnatural. It's painful. It's It's horrible for any human being to to, you know, have a part of their body amputated. That's not natural. Or or someone to mutilate themselves or, you know, for them to be dismembered. I mean, that's why, you know, like back in the dark ages or whenever, you know, people, if, if they really wanted to be mean to somebody, you know, they'd draw and quarter them and they'd cut them up into four pieces and send them out to various parts of the country. You know, here, the guy's in pieces. And I know it's disgusting, but that's, you know, being dismembered was, for a lot of people, that's one of the worst ways you could die. It's a horrible thing. God's saying divorce is like being dismembered. And so the issue is not whether people have the right to divorce here, but rather whether divorce can ever be God's will. And, and of course, they're not getting the point here, are they? So here's a question for you. How can you build... A happy and enduring marriage. Jesus gives us wonderful characteristics here of marriage that, that are very, very helpful. How can you build a happy and enduring marriage? Well, by going back to the original law in the Garden of Eden, Jesus is reminding his listeners of the true characteristics of marriage. Unfortunately, over time, as a lot of things happen, these things were corrupted, if you will. Various Jewish teachings had corrupted the, what God had originally built there in the Garden of Eden. And so if we remember these characteristics, it's going, to help, it's going to help us to know how to build a happy and enduring marriage. Number one, here's the first characteristic of marriage. Marriage is a divinely appointed union. It's a divinely appointed union. In other words, God is the one who established marriage. It's, it's the first institution that he made. And therefore, only God is—he is, he is the, the rightful owner and controller, if you will, of of the character and the laws of marriage. Governments don't have the right to come up with laws and change God's laws that He has set forth, even from the Book of Genesis. No court of law can change what God has established. Unfortunately, we have courts and governments doing that today, though, don't we? It's sad, but that's, that's what they're doing, and they're just asking for God's judgment in the process. So in one sense, I, I love this, you could actually say that every marriage is made in heaven. You ever heard that? Marriage made in heaven? Well, if you're married, you could say that your marriage was literally made in heaven. Because God's the the one who instituted marriage. He divinely appointed it. So why can we say that every marriage is made in heaven? Because God has joined together every husband and wife. Marriage is God's institution. It's God's doing. It's not yours. It's not the church's. It's not the government's. It's God's doing. So, number one, marriage is a divinely appointed union. Number two, second characteristic of marriage is that marriage is a physical union, it's a physical union. The man and woman, it says, become one flesh. Again, that's a quote from Genesis. Uh, The basis of the one flesh union is is something that's physical. Now, it should go beyond that. And so while it's important that a husband and wife be of one mind and heart, the basic union in marriage is physical. If a man and a woman become... Think about this, all right? Just think about this for a moment. If If a man and a woman become one spirit in marriage, then death would not dissolve the marriage. Because the spirit never dies. And that's one reason why it's, it's one flesh. And so if a man and a woman disagree, or you know, if a man and a woman so called incompatible with one another, they can't get along, then they're still married. For the union's a physical one. In fact, the Bible says that Spouses belong to each other in the physical relationship of marriage. God says, you're not your own. Your body is not yours. In fact, look at this. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 4 says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You're to submit to one another in that regard in regards to your body. So marriage, number two, is a, is a physical union. Number three, marriage is a permanent union. It's a permanent union. Notice Jesus says, uh, as he's quoting from Genesis again, he, he says that spouses are to cleave to one another. Cleave, that's an interesting word. The word cleave refers to a strong bonding together of objects. It was... uh <laughs> It was used amongst the Hebrews and the Greeks to represent gluing or cementing two objects together. If you've ever glued uh, uh, two pieces of wood together, for example, uh, if you use the right kind of glue and the right kind of wood, that bond actually becomes stronger than the wood itself. And so if you try to break it, a lot of times... The bond won't break. It's something else that ends up breaking. That's how strong that bond is. That's what God's saying. The bond is is permanent. Well, speaking of cleaving and gluing and cementing, it reminds me of what happened in that Christian movie called Fireproof. Uh, one of the scenes I love in the movie Fireproof is where uh, where Caleb, the guy... The guy's name is Caleb. He's he's sitting at the fire station there, talking with his workmate, who is a Christian. He Caleb wasn't a Christian at that point, and they were talking about their marriages and Caleb struggling with his marriage. So the guy he took the salt and shaker, the salt and and uh, pepper shaker that was sitting on the table, and he glued the salt and pepper shaker together, and he was doing that as an illustration to show how. How two become one, and it's, it should be an unbreakable bond, and when you try to rip them apart, it ends up destroying both. It, it just destroyed it. <laughs> and so, you know, they couldn't, funny, later on in the movie, there was one guy looking at the salt and shecker, salt and pepper shaker, they were glued together, and he's like, what's up with that? What? <laughs> it's weird, you know? That's not normal. It was, it was a great illustration of how two people become one, God's original design was that one man and one woman spend one life together. That's, that's the way he originally designed it. So God's original law knows nothing of trial marriages. God doesn't know anything about shacking up with one another and seeing whether or not we're compatible. That does that not fly in God's book. God's law requires a husband and wife enter into a marriage without reservations. It's it's a it's it's not you know it's not a uh, well you know I'll give this a trial I'll give it a you know I'll give it some time to see if this is going to work and you know I'm just going to live with a person to see if we're actually compatible That's unacceptable in God's book That's certainly not a true characteristic of marriage Number 4 the last characteristic of marriage here is that marriage is a union between one man and one woman uh have you ever noticed that God did not create two men and two women to be together? Uh, just look at the mess that in, in we see in, in the Old Testament when when husbands have multiple wives. That doesn't go over too well, does it? There there's there's problems. Uh God didn't create two women, two women to be married to one man, or two men to be married to one another. Did you notice God didn't make Adam and Steve? He didn't bring Adam and Steve together, right? It was Adam and Eve. It was a man and a woman, a male and a female. And, and notice in Genesis, God didn't bring two women together. It wasn't Ada and Eve. It was Adam and Eve. And God didn't create group marriages either. Now that's, that's, oh man, there's, there's some weird stuff going on today. You ever heard of these group marriages? Yeah, these the weird communities, these, So multiple couples, you know, kind of sharing each other around, it's a mess. But anyway, and then you got gay marriages and then all kinds of other strange variations that are totally contrary to the will of God. So no matter what the the psychologists and the judges might say, that is not God's will. God created one male, one female, Adam and Eve, and he brought them together. And by the way, God performed the first marriage ceremony. He's the one who walked Eve down the aisle and gave him to Adam, or gave sorry, gave Eve to Adam, and then he performed the marriage ceremony. Well, there's a great illustration in our Bibles. In fact, in our Old Testament, it talks about marriage. This is one of my favorite illustrations in the Bible. The prophet Hosea. He pictured the epitome of God ordained and God empowered marital love. I mean, the poor guy. I mean, God, God told him. <laughs> <laughs> go and marry Gomer, and uh, it's not going to go well, but you go and marry her anyway. And so here he is, he's, he's this living illustration of God's undying love for his people, Israel. The prophet married that woman named Gomer, who ends up becoming an, an adulterous prostitute. And so he ends up having children by her, and and, and he continued to love and care for her and protect her despite the fact that she was persistently unfaithful to him. He continued to love her anyway. He even brought her back from the slave market after she had sunk into the pits of immorality. After she had sunk into the pits of immorality. Gomer was surely not without... She was not innocent. Let me put it that way, okay? I'm sure there there was a lot of times where uh there there was anger and resentment uh but he forgave her and he did whatever was necessary to bring her back to himself and his love for gomer and his commitment for her and his uh, as his wife was was is a shining testimony it was to be an example of of god's love for his people israel because israel remember israel was unfaithful to god spiritually speaking they had They had prostituted themselves to false gods. God was gracious, and God was forgiving, and God gave them a living example of what they were doing to the one true God. It's a great story. If you've never read Hosea, read it. Have have a read. Read the whole thing in one sitting. Well, Jesus moves on to talk about the limits of divorce. Remember, because they had asked... In verse 3, hey, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus, (laughs) typical Jesus teaching, he doesn't get right to the point. He's sort of beating around the bush a little. He's not like explicit and direct in his answer. So let's look what he says about the limits of divorce here, starting in verse 7. It starts off with this question. They said to him, to Jesus, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I said to you, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. In verse 7 the Pharisees ask Jesus another question here. Why are they asking that question? Well, they they probably feel like they they've caught Jesus in a legal error. I mean, just think of think of a lawyer, you know, a keen-minded lawyer. That's kind of these guys are trying to do that. They're trying to catch Jesus out, they're trying to trying to get him in trouble and and turn the people against him. They they think they've caught him because hey, you know, hey, Moses Hey, he permitted divorce. In fact, they said that Moses had commanded divorce. And so the question centers on this certificate of divorce that officially freed a woman from the marriage and would allow the woman to remarry. There's actually a biblical example of that at the beginning of our book of Matthew. Remember what happened to Joseph and Mary? Remember when they were betrothed? They were in that engagement period? And Mary was found to be pregnant, and Joseph's thinking, you, you know what Joseph's thinking. Wait a minute. I've never had sexual relationship with Mary. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, as far as I know, hey, I'm a, I'm a virgin, but she can't be a virgin if she's pregnant. That's what he's thinking. So he's thinking, oh great. Well, the Old Testament said you're supposed to stone the woman, but they didn't do that. So they had this certificate of divorce. And so Joseph's thinking, well, I'm going to privately give her this certificate of divorce because she's been unfaithful. That's what Joseph was thinking. And, of course, the Holy Spirit uh, showed Joseph that that was not the case, that, that Mary was still a virgin. Don't divorce her. Don't give her that certificate of divorce. Marry her anyway. There's a wonderful, that's a wonderful example we see in Matthew. Well, it would have been the norm of Joseph's day, as I said, for him to give that certificate of divorce, but he didn't do that. And so, by the way, did you notice the Pharisees called this particular act a command? So they're assuming that it was something that was required. If you look at verse 8, Jesus shows that that's actually an error. That's not the case. Moses did not command people to give a certificate of divorce. Divorce was not commanded, it was only permitted. And so what is behind divorce? Jesus says, well, it's not God's will. What's actually behind divorce is the hardness of people's hearts. hardness of people's hearts is what was behind divorce. What are the limits of divorce? Well, if you look at Jesus' words in verse 9 very carefully, Jesus recognized that sexual unfaithfulness broke that Marriage bond, and it freed the innocent spouse then to be able to remarry. The point was that the new sexual union invalidated the first union between the husband and the wife. However, apart from that one instance, marriage is a divinely ordained covenant. It's something God instituted. Remarriage, following divorce, then constituted adultery in God's eyes. That's what Jesus said. If you remarry, unless there's unfaithfulness involved in the marriage, then you're actually being an adulterer. So here's Jesus. He's he's not saying you can divorce for any reason, which was the common belief of that day. Even, Even the disciples were believing that. But Jesus is upholding this divine covenant, the divine covenant of marriage. And so this powerful statement leads the disciples to ask an interesting question here in verse 10. They're basically asking Jesus in verse 10 hey, well, hey, if that's the case, if I can't get divorced for just any reason, you know, if my wife burns the uh the roast, you know, and I want to get divorced, and you're saying I can't, well, then why get married? That's what they're asking in verse 10. Look at verse we see. And then we see this discussion about celibacy, starting in verse 10. Uh, Verse 10 says, The disciples said to him, Jesus, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. (laughs) What an interesting discussion. For the disciples, Jesus' position made marriage unattractive. They wanted to have the right to divorce their wife for any reason. And uh, they were afraid, as, as a lot of people are even today, people are afraid of being so-called stuck uh, or trapped in an unhappy relationship. They, they want the outclaws, if you will. And so they asked Jesus, hey, why marry? Why marry? Why get married? Well, in verse 11, Jesus responds, and he's saying that not everybody can accept what the disciples have said about celibacy. That, that's what he's, he's saying there. And so the disciples, they're, they're speaking of something they don't truly comprehend. But Jesus wants, he's, he's going to clarify this true significance for us here. There's that, uh, there's, there's that statement there in, in Matthew 19. Who are, who are these those to whom it is given? Those to whom it is given. Who's that? Well, Jesus is referring to the followers who are open to this call of celibacy for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12 is not easy to understand either. This statement may be an example of Jesus' wisdom teaching, in which he's using two concrete realities of something that happened in everyday life to support a third spiritual truth. So it's, that's often what Jesus does. He'll take something going on in your life, and, and use that to portray a spiritual truth. And I think that's what he's trying to do here, verse 12. So he's talking about these eunuchs. <clears throat> and the first two statements are describing two different types of eunuchs in the world. Uh, number one, he says there's those born without sexual organs or they're impotent. Uh, the second kind, Jesus mentions there's, there, there's eunuchs. They're, they're made eunuchs either by castration, disease, or accident. So those are the the two things that that Jesus would have been dealing with at that time period. And so he uses that to transition into spiritual truth. And so Jesus' major emphasis is on this third category. He's he's metaphorically labeling these, uh, these people who've made themselves eunuchs here. So what's Jesus talking about? He's referring to disciples who choose the life of celibacy. That's what he's talking about. Hey, should i choose the life of celibacy well why well well these people they choose to stay single all their life and and they do it for the sake of the kingdom of heaven well, what does that mean it means that celibacy remaining single is for the purpose of giving yourself wholly to ministry and so we we get these unbiblical ideas of you know priests and nuns and People, you know, cloistering themselves and not getting married uh, and thinking that that somehow that is, that is a higher and better calling. That's not what Jesus is saying. The primary examples of, of celibacy, of course, are Jesus, John the Baptist, and the Apostle Paul. I hope you know that not all the apostles were celibates. Uh, for example, we know for, uh, that Peter was married. He had a mother-in-law. But one caution is necessary here as we think about this. Neither Jesus nor Paul is saying that celibacy or to be single is to be preferred or they're not saying it's a higher calling. You are not somehow more godly and more Christ-like and spiritual to be, to be single all your life. The point is that it's, it's a valid calling and it should be considered. If you are a disciple of Christ, by all means, you can consider it, but it shouldn't be considered to be higher or preferred calling. Let's make some application from our text here. So, as we think about uh, Christian marriages today, there's a number of ways we can apply this. Number one, uh, realize this, okay? The standards that Jesus is teaching is, is for Christians it's not for the world. Okay? The, 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 believers must not impose these standards on unbelievers. Okay? This has nothing to do with unbelievers. Jesus is talking to his disciples here. He's, t- he's talking to believers for the most part. Okay? So these standards are for Christians, not for the world. Number two. Your past is wiped clean by your conversion to Christ. Okay? Because many persons become Christians after they've either, you know, they're married and sometimes they get divorced, they have the right to marry for the first time as Christians. Okay? All of your sin comes under the blood of Christ, including divorce. Okay? Number three. Believers should stay married to unbelievers if that is possible. Uh, that's what the Bible's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You can read that context for yourself. And so, uh, Paul's saying there in 1 Corinthians 7 that sometimes an unbeliever can be married to a believer. Uh, Maybe they were unbelievers to start with. One of them becomes a Christian. Then, by all means, try to stay together. Sometimes God will use the believing spouse to reach the unbeliever. However, it's not it is possible that the unsafe spouse is not going to want to stay. If the unbeliever wants to leave, well then Paul says you got to let them leave. There's, you can't keep them. Paul says let the unbeliever go. If they don't want to stay, then let them go. Number 4. Divorce and remarriage are not unforgivable. Okay? Some, sometimes Christians think there's there, you know, this is one of those unforgivable sins. If you get divorced, God's never going to forgive you. Well, God's not. God is always willing to begin again with us. He is, he is so merciful and gracious and long suffering. So wherever we are, whatever we've done, God is gracious. God will forgive any sin. And so Churches need to be aware of this, and churches need to provide and, and be sensitive to Christians who've who've gone through divorces and remarriage. Okay, I'm not I'm not saying we should overlook sin. That's not that's not my point. But Christians shouldn't like you know, well I'll, I'll get to this in a moment. Let me just say my next point. All right, number five, churches should treat divorced people with mercy. They need to be treated with mercy. Sadly, even in Christian circles today, divorce is, is becoming accepted. Statistics show that the level of divorce is, is often the same in, in the church as, as, as it is in the world. About 50%, apparently. Uh, if you live on my street, it's more than that. <laughs> Seems like uh, it, it's really hard to find Someone you know who's still together, and the kids aren't you know going back and forth you know between mother and father man it's really hard to find at least where I live that's the case and so this is not to say that divorced people are second class members in the church, sometimes they get treated that way, so I believe the Bible recognized three exceptions that it, that allow divorce and remarriage number one, Jesus mentioned sexual immorality, so if one of the if one of the spouses, you know, commits adultery, then then the the innocent party is allowed to get remarried. Number two, there's the the, the desertion of an unbelieving spouse, First Corinthians seven, and then divorce. Uh, one one of the examples given in Scripture in First Corinthians six is it is if, is if there was a divorce before someone becomes a Christian. Number six. We should always seek forgiveness first. Okay, even if there's adultery or unfaithfulness taking place in the marriage relationship, always seek reconciliation. Okay, if, if that if that applies to your marriage or someone you know, we always want to forgiveness needs to be sought first. Reconciliation can happen. I've seen it happen. Some of my own friends who committed adultery against their wives are are still together, still love one another, and, And the relationship goes on. That's the way it should be. Divorce is not God's will. God allows it because of our sinful natures. He he knows it's going to happen because we are sinful. And, and, And so yet, even when something like immorality occurs within marriage, that doesn't mean that divorce is commanded. It doesn't mean that divorce is mandated, and you have to do that. Instead, repentance and reconciliation should be Saw it first number seven number seven all right the the choice of a spouse should be a spiritual act it should be a spiritual act so those of you who are single get this implanted in your brains all right marriage is a spiritual act that's the way it should be it, it's not a search for you know finding the most attractive person so you can show off to your friends that is not the point in marriage that is not the point in marriage. A lot of people think that. You know, hey, you know, people go around high school all the time. Hey, look at my girlfriend. Or uh look at my boyfriend. Aren't I cool? No, you're not. That's not the point in all this. For the apostle Paul, it marriage reflects the special union between Christ and the church. Read Ephesians chapter 5. We think that's all about marriage. It's not. Marriage is used as an illustration in Ephesians 5 to point to to something that is far greater and lasting. Marriage is only temporary. Your marriage is to point to Christ and His bride, which is the church. Let me ask you, when the world sees your marriage, is it an accurate representation? Does the world see Christ and His bride? (laughs) that's the point of your marriage. Your marriage is only temporary. In fact, the Bible says when when you die and you go to heaven, you're no longer going to be married. Okay, The only relationship that you need to care about in heaven is you're now the bride and you're married to the groom who is Jesus. So, it's a special union between Christ and the church. So it's important that our church Brings a sacred atmosphere to this whole discussion of marriage and the family. And sometimes we we almost worship marriage and we worship family, and and those are all wonderful things. But we need to realize it, its point. It should all point to something greater. The spiritual aspect must be the main thing. Okay. So those of you who are single, it's not about you all being a, ooh ah about somebody and. You know, I got my feelings toward this person and I want to show off and, you know, and I want to find this attractive person, this smart person or this funny person or whatever they are so I can show off. That's not what it's about. You're to get married to show off Christ. Number eight and last. Celibacy is a valid option in the church. Celibacy is a valid option in the church. I believe it's actually a spiritual gift. All right? It's not for everybody. In fact, I don't think it's for most people. All right, it is, I certainly don't think it's for most people. But uh, for many in ministry, it, it actually—it's actually better to remain single, so you ha- you have this this purpose in life. You can spend more time for kingdom business, for the sake of Christ and His kingdom. That's what Paul believed. The apostle Paul believed that he he had the gift of celibacy, so so he could. He could travel around establishing all these churches. He had no idea how long he was going to live, either. He fully expected to be killed basically everywhere he went. And so it, it's a val, it, it is as valid today as it was in the time of Jesus or Paul. Okay, Jesus and Paul were not lesser men, because they were celibates. You say, well, what kind of people might consider this gift as a part of their calling? Well, this might include people such as missionaries. It might include evangelists. It might include itinerant teachers. Okay, If you're living in some place like New Zealand, it's probably not necessary. But somebody who travels around a lot might consider being uh, single all their life. Or somebody who wants to go and minister to the Muslim world might be a good idea for you to remain single. Your chances of living long are not very good. But we must remember that celibacy is a calling. It's not for everybody. Uh, In fact, Jesus does not elevate single status above marriage. It's a good thing. The Bible says, He who finds a wife finds... It's a good thing. It's a good thing to be married. So it's it's not... uh, this, This single status is not above marriage. But it is a valid calling for those who are in ministry. Now, there's hardly a matter... In today's church, it's treated with more carelessness than the issue of divorce and remarriage. Very careless, and people just—it's—it's it's almost like Christians. A lot of Christians don't care. They just do it. They don't—they don't think about the consequences. They don't think, well, hey, what does the Bible say? They don't go and talk to their pastor about it. They don't—they just do it. But identifying with and seeking to help people who have failed in their marriage does not mean lowering the standards if anything we need to look at jesus and say hey let's raise the bar that's raise the standards let's go back to the beginning what does the book of genesis say we must maintain the bible standards not our world standards it seems like as i said remember the statistics show the church and the world pretty much got the same divorce standards one, what seems like one about a, one of two marriages ends in divorce, so we've got to maintain the bible standards, but as we do that let's let's be compassionate let's be loving let's understand those who haven't followed the bible's standards so remember one important thing if you remember nothing else about this sermon today, remember who's is Jesus Jesus is again showing us that he is the final interpreter of Torah. He's the interpreter of the Bible. He shows that both marriage and celibacy are are valid kingdom realities. He raises the bar. He raises the standard. It's, Which he, he typically does, doesn't he? And so we need to look to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith.